Overview of Enhanced Barrier Precautions, a conversation with Dr. Jean Storm. This webinar included a visual PowerPoint presentation. To view a video recording, visit the link in the description of this podcast. Good afternoon and welcome to our series of webinars focused on bringing you information about COVID-19 related topics. The information in these weekly webinars is geared toward long-term care and skilled nursing facilities, but we encourage everyone who is interested to attend. Today, we will be giving an overview of Enhanced Barrier Precautions, or EBPs. My name is Kathy Caudill. I'm a Communications Specialist with Quality Insights, and now I'd like to introduce our guest today, Dr. Jean Storm. Dr. Storm is Medical Director here at Quality Insights. She has a background in nursing home care, internal medicine, and healthcare leadership. She most recently served as Associate Medical Director for Optum United Healthcare. She has also served as Regional Medical Director for 38 long-term care facilities in West Virginia. She earned her DO from Lake Erie College of Osteopathic Medicine and completed her postgraduate training at Mill Creek Community Hospital in Erie, Pennsylvania. Dr. Storm, thank you for joining us again. Thanks so much, Kathy, and thanks everybody for joining us. Um, recently, we've gotten a lot of questions on enhanced barrier precautions. Um, so we wanted to conduct a, a webinar today, and um, I'm going to talk about a case, but I would encourage you all, if you have a challenging case around enhanced barrier precautions, to go ahead and save it for the end and um, share it so everybody can learn. So the objectives for today, you're going to, we're going to talk about a brief history of MDROs, multi-drug resistant organisms. I know we've heard a lot about these and we deal with them on a daily basis in long-term care. So we're going to do a brief overview because we really are focused on MDROs with enhanced barrier precautions. So we're going to talk about how they're spread. We're going to talk about colonization a little bit, infections, and who is at risk for MDROs. We're going to talk about the CDC's rationale in recommending enhanced barrier precautions. And then we're going to talk about the guidelines and implementation of enhanced barrier precautions in the nursing homes. And this has been the subject of a lot of questions lately. Anything that's new brings up a lot of questions, especially in long-term care, because we have so much going on. I mean, there's so much documentation and there's so many procedures to follow. So it's really natural to have a lot of questions about a new procedure. Um, so we'll be going through that today. So patient case, this is a 64-year-old female. She's admitted to a skilled nursing facility from the hospital after a stay for sepsis and chronic kidney disease. Hemodialysis is initiated during the hospitalization. So she has a tunnel dialysis catheter that's placed. 26 days after her admission to the nursing home, she's found to have a temperature of 100.2 and a heart rate of 108. So we know with sepsis tools, the easiest one to remember is 100, 100, 100. And here we have a temperature greater than 100 and we have a heart rate greater than 100. So we know that she's looking like she's septic. So we try to keep the patient in the facility and initial labs are drawn, but she is unresponsive the following day. So this is common, right? This happens a lot, especially with our hemodialysis patients. The have a change in condition very rapidly. So she's sent to the hospital and diagnosed with MRSA bacteremia, 
from the dialysis from a dialysis catheter associated infection. So is this preventable hospitalization, perhaps if we would have used the right precautions like the CDC recommends? So just as an, a review, what is a multi-drug resistant organism? These are typically bacteria, though we've been seeing a lot about a candida species that's been resistant recently. I'm sure you've seen it in the news. Um, so these bacteria are typically typically bacteria that are resistant to one or more classes of antibiotics. These are the bacteria that when you see a urine culture and you see R R R R R, meaning it's resistant to most of them, that's when you know you have an MDRO. These organisms are frequently resistant to the most common antibiotics. They're associated with longer hospital stays, increased costs, higher mortality. These make people really really sick, and they're hard to treat because as I've said before, when we have individuals in the nursing home, we have sometimes they have uh, allergies to medication. So it's very challenging to pick an antibiotic that is suitable for them. And if we have a resistant organism that narrows the back, the antibiotic down even further. And then if we have compromised renal function, then that will narrow the antibiotic down even further. So it really limits our choice. And the prevalence of MDROs have increased a lot over the last few decades, especially in nursing homes. And probably that is driven by the number of antibiotics that we prescribe in the nursing home. So antibiotics are causing resistance. So when we look at colonization versus infection, colonization means that we have a potential bacteria on a present on the individual's body may not be causing an infection. It increases risk for infection. So like our patient with the tunnel dialysis catheter, she was in the hospital. So she might've been exposed to MRSA. Perhaps she had it on her body. She was colonized and it put her at risk of developing infection. And that's what happened. So individuals who are chronically ill, like patients who are on hemodialysis, immunosuppressed, or they've been recently admitted to the ICU, they are incre at increased risk of developing infections from bacteria that are already on their body that they're colonized with. So what is the rationale for using enhanced barrier precautions? Our residents are at increased risk of becoming colonized with MDROs and developing infections. So we want to prevent colonization if at all possible, because we know when they're colonized, they have, they're at increased risk of developing infection. We do know that 50%, about 50% of our nursing home residents are, may be colonized with an MDRO. So if we only look at infection uh, at residents who have an active infection, then we're really not looking at prevention. And when we think about prevention, what we really want to think about is transmission. So we want to prevent MDROs from being transmitted from one resident to another. So there's growing evidence that traditional in implementation of just our regular old contact precautions in nursing home is not, is not going to prevent MDRO uh, transmission. So enhanced barrier precautions refer to the use of gown and gloves during high contact care, resident contact care activities. And so what really is happening, you think about when you provide resident care, say if you are changing a resident, you know, when when you kind of roll that resident over and perhaps they roll against you, 
you might get an MGRO on your scrubs and whatever you're wearing. And then you move on to the next resident and do the same thing. And then you transfer whatever is on your scrubs to the next resident. So that is the rationale behind enhanced barrier precautions. That's why we're using a gown and gloves. And then just for the a resident, the resident care that we're doing, and then we're throwing it out and moving on. MDROs may be indirectly transferred from resident to resident during these high contact care activities. So who are we using enhanced barrier precaution? What residents? Is it all residents? So we're using enhanced barrier precautions in residents who have wounds and indwelling medical devices. So they are very high risk of acquisition and colonization with MDROs. So we're using gown and gloves for high contact resident care activities. So this is when contact precautions do not otherwise apply. This is for residents with wounds, indwelling medical devices, regardless of them. We don't care if they're, if they're colonized with MDRO. We are just going to utilize them if the resident has a wound or an indwelling device. And also we would be using these for residents if we know they have an MDRO infection and we know that they're colonized. So for an individual that has a wound and an indwelling medical device, irregardless of if we know if they're colonized or not, we're using the enhanced barrier precautions. And then for residents that we know have an MDRO infection or we know that they're colonized, we're also going to be using um, the enhanced barrier precautions. So what are our examples of high contact resident care activities? Getting a resident dressed, bathing and showering, transferring, providing hygiene, you know, brushing teeth, combing, hair, shaving, changing a brief or assisting with toileting, changing linens, device care. So anytime we are changing a urinary catheter, we're changing a feeding tube, we're changing a trach, we're changing a central line, we should be using enhanced barrier precautions during this care. And then wound care, CDC has a really great informational site about which type of wound care we should be using um, enhanced barrier precautions for. And then physical and occupational therapy as well, because sometimes that is high contact. So chronic wounds. So the, the intent of enhanced barrier precautions are to, it's to focus on residents who are at high risk of acquiring an MDRO over a period of time. So this includes residents that have chronic wounds. So we're not talking about skin tears. We're not talking about skin breaks. Um, if they're covered with a bandage, we're not, um, that's not what chronic wound is. So pressure ulcer, diabetic foot ulcers, unhealed surgical wounds, chronic venostasis ulcers. Um, all of those would be included in an individual who would be getting enhanced barrier precautions with care. So our indwelling medical devices, central vascular lines, our hemodialysis catheters, or if the patient has a indwelling urinary catheter, if they have a feeding tube, if they have a tracheostomy tube. So things to consider about enhanced barrier precautions. So it's enhancing the current standard and transmission-based precautions. So we're just putting another level in place to prevent MDRO transmission between residents. So we're 
During care, we're going to use gown and gloves for each resident during high contact resident care activities that I talked about. And then when you are finished with the resident care activity, you're going to take off the gown and gloves and you're going to move on to the next resident. Obviously, we use hand, we're going to perform hand hygiene in between um, removing the gown and gloves and then moving on to the next resident. So it's not recommended for residents with C. diff. These residents need to be on contact precautions and isolation as per your facility policy. Residents do not require a private room because this isn't something that's going to be limited. These patients are going to typically have enhanced barrier precautions for the amount of time that they are in the facility. And they're not restricted to their rooms. So this is not isolation. So if somebody, some, a resident is colonized with a MDRO in their urine, they have ESBL in their urine, you and they get treated, you're not going to isolate them to the room forever. Uh, but you are going to use enhanced barrier precautions because they are colonized with an MDRO. So more things to consider. It's intended to be in place for the duration that the resident is in the facility until if the wound is resolved or they have the the tunnel dialysis catheter is removed and they have fistula placed. Um, so if that is is resolved, then we would go ahead and get rid of um, the, the enhanced barrier precautions. So if they're colonized with an MDRO, we would not. So it does not replace existing guidance regarding use of contact precautions. So it's intended to provide care when a resident is in their room during high contact resident care activities. So including transfers. This does not mean that we're going to use enhanced barrier precautions when the resident is in the dining room. We are not going to use it when they're when they're out in um, uh, other areas um, except physical therapy and occupational therapy. So does enhanced barrier precautions work? So if you're like me, sometimes things get put in place and you question. Um, I'm a curious person. So I want to know, does it work? Like this, this sounds wonderful. It sounds like it's going to, um, it, it, it would work. Um, but let's look at a study to see if it works. So they did a study and this was pu published in JAMA Internal Medicine in uh, 2015. So the study looked at enhanced barrier precautions utilized in over 200 residents that had indwelling devices in six different nursing homes. So it was a good um, study. It was a good amount of individuals and they compared it to a control group of also a little over 200 residents. So barrier precaution signs were placed on the doors to their rooms, inside the closets and at the nurse's station on their medical records. So everybody was aware that enhanced barrier precautions needed to be utilized during high contact care with these residents. It also included active surveillance for infections and MDROs. They also um, promoted hand hygiene and structured infection prevention education in the control group. And the infection preventionists and the inter intervention facilities were invited to a conference on surveillance methods for infection. So really great study. So what happened? There was a 23% reduction in the prevalence of all MDROs in the intervention group. So that's pretty significant. This is compared to the control group 
that didn't see that reduction. So when enhanced barrier precautions were used in these patients, they had a 23% reduction in the prevalence of all MDROs. There was a reduced incident of new MRSA acquisition in the intervention group compared to the control group. So another great thing, MRSA is probably the most common MDRO that we see in our nursing homes. So this is huge. There was also a reduction in catheter-associated UTI in the intervention group compared to the control group. Another pretty significant finding. Okay, so we know it works. So does the patient require a private room? No. So single patient rooms, as we all know, should be prioritized for residents have acute infection with a communicable disease, communicable disease. So that's influenza, COVID, hepatitis A, or for residents, if we have this, if we have a private room available, for residents placed on contact precautions with acute diarrhea, if they have a draining room wound or other sites secretions and are unable to be covered or contained if we have a private room. So shared rooms. Residents who have enhanced, who are on enhanced barrier precautions may share a room with other residents. So facilities with capacity to offer single patient rooms or create roommate pairs based on MDRO colonization may choose to do so. This is fantastic if we can do that. If, if we know that a resident does, is colonized with an MDRO, we know that there's another resident who has the same MDRO colonization. And if we can have them be roommates, that's wonderful. If there are multiple residents with the same MDRO in the facility, consider cohorting them in one wing to decrease spread. Sometimes this is possible, sometimes it's not. I know it's very challenging and it makes for creative room moves. Um, so if possible, that this would be wonderful. When cohorting patients with the same MDRO is not possible, we wanna, we wanna pay, place MDRM patients in room with patients who are at low risk for acquisition of MDROs. So that means if we have a patient with an MDRO and there's we can't cohort that patient with the MDRO in with another patient with the same MDRO, we want to put them in a room where there's a the other resident has a low risk for acquisition, acquisition of an MDRO and associated adverse outcomes from infection. So these are people that are not immunocompromised, that are of no open wounds. So we don't want to put a patient who has ESBL in their urine into a room with a patient who has no MDROs and has an open wound. So we want to kind of think about these things when we um, put patients together as roommates. So signs, these signs are available on the CDC website and the link is there. I don't know if we're all wore out with signs, um, but this is really helpful so we understand why we're doing what we're doing. And if you can share with staff that study, it's really significant. It, it made a big difference in a lot of patients' lives. And if we can prevent patients from going out to the hospital, that's fantastic. You know, MDRs, MDRO infections are significant, especially in patients who are immunocompromised, like our dialysis patients. So patients can die. So this can prevent a patient from dying. So it's it's significant. So, you know, we, we put these signs inside the patient's room, um, inside the bathroom at the nurse's station. So everybody is aware of what we should be doing. 
So we, again, these are just to signal to individuals that specific actions should be taken. Um, and this sign is really great because it right, it shows you exactly what you should be doing, in what order, and what you should be putting on. Um, I don't know about you, but at the beginning of the pandemic, it was I was really happy to have these signs because the donning and the doffing was um, was challenging at first. Even though I had been tested on it at some point in my training, I had to get tested on it again in the nursing home. So putting up signs has really been shown, especially signs that list a a checklist of the series of events that an individual a staff member should should go through for the PPE have really been shown to work. So I would highly encourage you to use these signs in your facility for enhanced barrier precautions. So we want generic signs, um, the, the generic signs, I'm sorry, generic signs that just instruct individuals to speak to the nurse are not adequate. And I don't know if anyone, I, I just, I don't think those are effective. It just says, please, you know, talk to the nurse, the nurse's station. It, it's really important to make sure that what staff need to do is listed on the sign. And obviously we're not going to include any information about why the sign is there. Um, we can't do that in the facility, obviously, due to privacy. And it's a HIPAA violation and a violation of resident dignity. So we always want to make sure we have our resources. Again, as I said, the CDC has a lot of resources. I would go directly to their website if you have, if you'd like to download any of that material or you can feel free to reach out to me. I'd be happy to help you navigate. Um, a couple of people have actually already reached out to me um, about navigating enhanced barrier precautions and I'm happy to answer your questions. I always learn when somebody asks me a question, so I'm happy to um, answer them. Dr. Storm, I'd like to thank you for joining us again today. If you would like to contact Dr. Jean Storm, you can email her at jstorm at qualityinsights.org. You can check out our other interviews at qualityinsights.org slash QIN slash multimedia.